This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Raphael's last painting that he did was of the Transfiguration. And I'm not a huge art fan, but uh, it's a wonderful uh, painting. I would encourage you to look it up. Interestingly, it depicts kind of at the, the top, the, the glory of Jesus, high and lifted up in the transfiguration, and these wonderful bright colors, and Moses and Elijah are at either side, and uh, the three disciples are there on the top of the mountain, kind of shielding their eyes, waking up from sleep, kind of awakening to his powerful glory. Um, you know, all the synoptic gospels record that right after the transfiguration, there's this incident before us now where they come down from the mountain and there's this um, demon-possessed uh, boy and this failure on, the, on the behalf of the disciples to help him. And so Raphael's painting, kind of below the shining glory, below the mountain, uh, we, we, we begins the, to, the colors begin to darken. And there's the crowd holding up this young boy that's being tormented by a demon and the remaining disciples there unable to help him. And everyone is in a frenzy and they're pointing at each other and it kind of captures this, this interesting moment. The context in the text that we see is very striking. In one sense, we see the glory of Jesus above and the glory of Jesus below. Above on the mountain, his majesty is unveiled the glory that he had with the Father before creation. He is God the Son, God the, the, the Word, the Word of God, the way to God. They saw his glory. Peter uses that, that word, that word glory, or really the word for majesty in 2 Peter 1 when he's describing his eyewitness account of what happened. He says, we saw his majesty. That same Greek word is used here to describe what the people see at the bottom of the mountain. When they see Jesus and he confronts and overpowers the demonic forces. They were all, verse 43, astonished at the majesty of God. So there's glory above and glory below. But the painting acts more like a, a snapshot of this moment in time. And that provides another contrast. Jesus in all of his glory and, at the same time, the failure of the disciples. Their failure in no way diminishes the glory of Jesus. He is who he is and will always be. And that doesn't change. That's instructive for us to remember. And yet the contrast remains. The glory of Christ and the failure of his disciples. Let me just say up front that criticizing Christians or the church is often used as an excuse for not coming to Christ. It was one that I used often as a young, young man. All the Christians I knew, they're hypocrites, there's nothing to this. So I blamed all that I'd seen in the mistakes of my Christian friends on Jesus. Just because the disciples fail in our passage does not mean that Jesus fails. In fact, as we, what we see, he works in power through their failure, and it doesn't change who he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That said, Jesus does rebuke the disciples for their lack of faith. He does correct them and refocus them multiple times in our passage. He does desire that the disciples reflect him and point others to him and help others to follow him. So our hope, friends, isn't it that, that Christians of all people would be those that would provide the best recommendation 
for who Jesus is. That people would observe our lives and be pointed to Jesus, not away from Jesus. But we know that's not always the case. Sometimes Christians can actually stand in the way of someone else seeing Jesus clearly. Outsiders can often sense uh, an hypocrisy, the reality gap between what we say and how we live. Uh, they, they maybe take in the harsh words they would hear us say about others um, that we would disagree with. They would see how we can focus on ourselves, how we can neglect to love the people that are most in need around us, how we can be proud and look down on others. Sometimes people's perception of the church is unfair and, and wrong, but sometimes it's more accurate than we care to admit. Our desire, and more importantly, Christ's desire, is that we would reflect the glory of Christ, that, that, that people would see his glory above and his glory below, that our lives would reflect the glorious gospel and that our love for one another would commend Jesus to the world. If you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, I want you to know up front, we are not a perfect church. We are full of sinners, but this is our desire is to give a clear picture of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. We're praying to be a faithful witness to Jesus because this is what Jesus intends. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so this morning, we're going to look at four incidents here in Luke 9 that basically highlight a failure in the disciples to reflect and glorify Jesus. And if you're anything like me, you'll find this failure to be quite familiar. Some of these sinful patterns are obviously not unique to the disciples. If you're taking notes, I'll list them up front for you. Uh, number one, we see the failure of unbelief in verses 37 to 43. Unbelief. Number two, the failure of taking our eyes off of the cross. Verses 43 to 45, taking our eyes off the cross. Number three, we could put this one in maybe several categories, but pride, pride, verses 46 to 48. And then finally, number four, fighting the wrong enemy. Fighting the wrong enemy, verses 49 to 50. Uh, these patterns of sin are familiar because all too often we have failed to reflect the glory of Jesus in countless ways. Often it's not a question of if these things would apply to me, but, but how? And so let's remember the words that came from the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration, looking down to Jesus as the chosen Son of God. He said, listen to him. And so let's listen together as we look to his word together. The first failure that we see comes because of unbelief. That's number one, unbelief. Look with me again at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, the great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. 
Again, this is a jarring transition from the transfiguration, coming down from the mountain where Peter, James, and John see Jesus in unspeakable glory. They are immediately reminded that this world is oftentimes an ugly and broken place. On the mountain, they witness God the Father's delight in his glorious Son. And here in the crowd below, there is a father in agony because his only son is tormented by a demonic spirit. Another instance there of Luke just highlighting the only son connection in some of Jesus' miracles. The description of the son in his situation is just tragic. He cries out in pain. When a demon seizes him and causes his body to convulse and foam at the mouth, it it seems to be a regular occurrence with only moments of relief. It will hardly leave him. It shatters him. It shatters him, verse 39. Literally, it's crushing him together. And then if you kind of take in the descriptions from the other gospels that Luke omits, we know that he was grinding his teeth, becoming stiff as a board in Mark 9. He had been cast into the fire, into the water. He's covered with scars. Mark says that the Spirit had made him deaf and dumb. So he can't communicate his pain or his fears or receive any comfort from others. And then add to that situation that there's this failure on the part of Jesus' disciples to help him, to heal him. Verse 40, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. We're left to assume that these disciples are those nine disciples left below um, at the bottom as, as the other three were at the top with Jesus on the mountain, and they're unable to cast out the demon. We saw at the beginning, if you remember, of chapter 9, when Jesus sends out the 12, he gives them power and authority over all demons to cure and to cure diseases. And they had had some success in this area from this recent trip that they had taken in Galilee. But here they are unable. They're unable. And Jesus' response to the situation, I think, helps us understand what's going on. Uh, but there in verse 41, just keep reading. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, Jesus seems to be, I think, speaking kind of inclusively to, to many here. I don't think he's addressing particularly the, the, the father who is coming to bring his son to him. That seems to be an act of faith, even though it's, it's weak faith, as we, we see in, in Mark, but it's nevertheless an act of faith. But the crowd, and I think especially the disciples, when he refers to this, kind of them as faithless and twisted and as a generation, well, that's, that's Exodus language that we've, we've been seeing throughout this account. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, the, the song of Moses, um, the Lord describes the, the people of Israel this way. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in Numbers 14, 11, the Lord says to Moses, this sounds familiar, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. And of course, in Mark's gospel, the disciples ask Jesus directly, why could we not cast out the demon? And to which Jesus responded, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And in Matthew, when they ask Jesus, their fundamental problem, Jesus says, is a lack of faith. We can see how those two things would have a direct relationship between one another. Lack of prayer, lack of faith. 
But the good news here that we see is that Jesus is not limited by the weakness or the failure of his disciples, even their lack of faith. Uh, Look there in verse uh, 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, kind of this last-ditch effort by the demon. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Friends, in one moment, Jesus defeats this demon, restores the boy to his father. He, he, he heals this, the, the brokenness that's been in this family since, since this boy was a child. Imagine the healing. He was now talking and hearing and walking in freedom. And they were astonished. Note, at the majesty of God as they looked at what Jesus had done. The connection there between the works of Jesus and them glorifying God. So the problem exposed here is that the disciples failed to have confidence in Jesus' power and authority to help them. So there's both a lack of of faith in Jesus and then an over-reliance upon their own abilities and strength. Beloved, I just wonder if you can relate to that. A lack of confidence in Jesus' power and authority and an overconfidence in your own ability to fix things. My own ability to do things in my own strength, in my life. It's easy to trust the Lord when there are reasonable solutions close at hand. I've been convicted about this uh, so much and in so many different ways. There's so much we can do in life, in ministry, without God's help. We just do them because they need to be done. I've done a lot of it. And friends, here's the reality. For the things that matter in life, in eternity, we are powerless to do anything in our own strength. We we must trust God to do all of the important eternal work in our lives and ministries. All of it. In our battle with temptation, we must trust the Lord to do the powerful work of change in our heart. With our battle in 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 this dark world, including with demonic powers, in our struggle in relationships that seem impossible to men, if you've had a relationship like that, that you just realized it's going nowhere, it's been going nowhere, and there's no hope of it going anywhere else. The only thing that's going to change that is God's grace, His power an apparent lack of fruit in our evangelism. Praying for a child to come home from a season of rebellion. For healing for a heart that has been wounded and broken so deep that you can't even really articulate it. How is healing going to happen apart from the Lord? For a greater selflessness in our life, a greater love for the lost a greater burden for unreached peoples, a love for the homeless and poor around us, a growing hunger to know and love Jesus Christ. We need God's grace and help. This kind cannot be driven out by any but prayer. Friends, thankfully, Jesus does not call us to earn his help with our faith. He doesn't say, I'll only help when your faith has reached a certain threshold. Now he says, faith the side of a, of a mustard seed will do. 
He helps this father in this story who is honest with Jesus about his own doubts at that moment. I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus does. So friends, I just want to encourage you to to come to him, to ask him to work in your heart to show you your need for him. Even when you struggle to believe and to understand that need and watch him work. We don't drift into greater trust and dependency on the Lord. We do drift into this kind of self-sufficiency. And I think that's what's happening with the disciples. So unbelief is the first problem that we see here in this passage. The next, number two, is taking our eyes off the cross. They, be, they begin to take their eyes off of the true mission of Jesus. And it's at this very moment, isn't it? This moment of triumph and victory that Jesus gets the disciples' attention. The issue at hand here is healing and authority over demons, but, but that's not the heart of Jesus' mission. This feels very much like what we saw earlier in the chapter when Peter and the disciples gave the good confession about Jesus' identity in chapter 9, verse 20. Right after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Christ of God, Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so and so here, just like there, where there was this, this, this idea about what a Messiah would be that needs to be understood and through the lens of the cross here, right after this glorious mountaintop experience and this miraculous healing. We pick it up there at the second part of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let this sink into your ears. In other words, listen. If you have ears to hear, hear. It'd probably been about a week since he had had revealed this his true mission to them and he had talked about his, his coming suffering. And now he wants them to hear it again. The, the main point of my ministry, guys, is not, 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 not this thing, not, not healing and everyone looking at all the wonderful things I've done, although those certainly pointed to the main thing, the, pointed to the main issue, but he has come to save sinners from hell. And that's what he's referencing here. He's going to do that by being delivered into the hands of men. While they're marveling at all the things he had done, he directs their gaze to the cross. It would be through treachery, through betrayal of a close friend that he would be handed over to the religious leaders and a Roman governor and an angry mob, wicked soldiers who would nail him to a rough piece of wood and leave him to die. This was his path. The son of man's, the son of man would come to be delivered over to men. That, that's the gospel in a, in, a, in a quick sentence. The son of man, man's representative head, where our first representative Adam failed and sinned. And in Adam, we all die. The second Adam, the, the, the one who would come and represent us perfectly in righteousness has come to be delivered over to men who are doomed to judgment to save us from our sins. Friends, that's the good news of what Jesus has come to do. He's come to save and conquer through dying because that's what our sins deserve, death, eternal death. 
And Jesus absorbs the wrath of God himself on the cross for his people. For all those who had turned from their sins and put their faith and trust in him. And he rose then from the grave, triumphant over sin and death. He calls us to come to him. Now we pray that you would come to him. This is how he would triumph. And this is the second time that he is re- he's recorded here sharing that with his disciples, but they still don't get it. Verse 45, but they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Listen, I think there's some, some mystery here, but it's interesting in that same chapter in Deuteronomy where we find Moses' last song to the Lord and those references to the obstinance of Israel in the wilderness and their unbelief, the Lord says this in Deuteronomy 32, 20, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. It reminds us, I think, of what Jesus said when he was asked about why he teaches in parables in Luke 8. He said, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Quoting from Isaiah 6, 9 to 11. Isaiah's commission to ministry. And so, friends, it was concealed from them and they are responsible for their unbelief. Friends, if we listen to ourselves, not listen to the Lord, not listen to his word, if we listen to ourselves, if we make our own way, if we invent our own good news, the words of Jesus will have this effect on us too. Our rebellion makes our hearts dull and our ears heavy and our eyes blind. Matthew actually adds, when the disciples heard Jesus speak like this, they were greatly distressed. So they understood what he was saying, but they didn't like it. Pride will always keep us from a focus on the cross. And it's their pride that actually keeps them from asking more questions. Just a a good reminder, that's at work in our own hearts, isn't it? We don't understand something, but we don't want to ask because that makes me look like I don't know what I'm talking about. I gotta have this persona that I know what I'm talking about. They don't even ask about what what he meant. They were afraid to ask him. Now, taking our focus away from the cross is not gonna exactly look like this all the time. Of course, we just deny that Jesus died on the cross. But remember, Jesus' call to the disciples just after that passion prediction was to take up their cross daily and to follow him. That is what we can sometimes be, if we're honest, allergic to in our day-to-day life. Jesus calls us to follow him in that kind of sacrificial love. A love that puts others before ourselves. That kind of love that, that when someone sees it, points to a crucified Savior. Friends, are we satisfied in what Jesus has done for us? Or are we still seeking out all the world offers us to be truly satisfied? Are we trying to construct in some way a Christian life that avoids inconvenience and suffering at all costs? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The one thing I want you to know is this. I want the thing at the center stage to be the cross. 
Jesus and him crucified. If the cross loses its centrality in our worship or our discipleship or our personal evangelism or our stewardship or our love for one another, we will be about ourselves. We will be about us. Making much of us. And that is exactly what the disciples do, isn't it? Making much of themselves. Number three, we see their sin of pride. Number three, pride. This is one of those times when you're reading the Bible, and and hopefully you have these a lot, but where the words just jump out, and you might jump out of the page, and you might say something out loud. You're reading this in your living, and you're like, you got to be kidding me. This is one of those moments. If you're just reading along, you're following the story of what's happening. You see Jesus talking about going to his death, specifically being rejected, suffering for sinners. He's going to give his life as a sacrifice to those that do not deserve it, who are dead in trespasses and sins, that deserve hell because they've offended a holy God. They're unable to save themselves, unable to please God in anything that they can do because their hearts, our hearts are wicked. All of our lives are infected with sin. That's the background of what Jesus is going to do. And it's the background of what the disciples are talking about. They, they're, they're, this, this is their conversation. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So it begins to shed light on maybe why they would have a hard time understanding why Jesus would suffer and die. Because they are so focused on themselves. Jesus, the truly glorious one, is talking about his upcoming suffering And the disciples, who are insignificant in every way, are talking about their personal greatness. This is the sinister, sneaky nature of pride. It's the sin that we cannot see in ourselves, but we detest in other people. It's why I can get so riled up about this, but not about the same exact thing that I've done this week. This week. They are arguing about this, not just thinking it, arguing. They're giving arguments. They're giving their resume. Probably Peter, James, and John are saying, well, who was asked to go on the mountain? Not everybody was asked to go on the mountain. And who was left at the bottom and couldn't even do this one little miracle? I mean, I'm not trying to say anything, but There's clearly a pecking order. How far the disciples are from the spirit of Jesus. J.C. Ryle said, of all creatures, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. We have so much to be humble about. And yet our pride centers us around us. Kent Hughes illustrates with a difference between cats and dogs. He says, the master pets a dog and the dog wags its tail and thinks he must be God. You know where this is going. The the, the master pets the cat and the cat purrs, shuts his eyes and thinks to himself, I must be God. Friends, we're all cat people because of our sin. Jesus, again, so he corrects his followers Again, 
This time he uses an object lesson. Look there at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And so he turns their thinking upside down. The the child is a picture here of helplessness and unimportance. So Judaism under 12, like, yeah, I mean, you're there, but you're not, that's about it. They're not able to learn the Torah. And so like literally there's things that have been written, these, these early sources that would say, like the definition of wasting time is hanging out with children. And among other things, oversleeping and drinking wine at midday. Now, we're going to see more about Jesus' view about children as we go through Luke's gospel. But, but here he just uses a child as an example of someone who is lowly, who's unable to advance your life in any way, not great. And he turns around and says, this is greatness in my kingdom. And I think you need to see the picture, not just of the child, but Jesus with the child, them together. In Matthew 18, he tells Uh, the disciples, that you're going to actually have to humble yourself and become like a child in order to enter the kingdom. That's that's another sermon. We could could spend time there. But here he's he's saying the disciples are those that, that, who, who know that, who have said, I've been welcomed by Jesus because I am lowly, because I can bring nothing to the table. Therefore, I'm going to welcome others. I'm going to welcome the lowly. I'm going to welcome the unimportant in the name of Jesus. So those that show they've received Jesus himself welcome others that can do nothing for them. Just in just the same way that, that you would welcome an emissary, not only welcome the emissary, but the one who sent that emissary. And so when you welcome the child, you welcome Jesus himself. And when you welcome Jesus, you welcome the one who sent him, the father. It's the one who is least among you that is great. Notice he never uses the superlative greatest. He simply says, Pursue this kind of selfless love, love that's not going to be paid back, gospel-shaped love. Pursue that kind of love. That is true greatness, but you won't find it through comparison. Who's the greatest? But this is, this is what it means to be truly great. Friends, how often do we often compare ourselves with others? Other Christians, other churches, other families, other ministries, but who's really the greatest? Who's really got it all together? And Jesus says, let's look at this child. He has no power, no money, no recognition, no accomplishments. It's so easy to be kind and welcoming to the rich and the powerful. They can can bless you right back. But Jesus is now calling his disciples to imitate him and showing love to the very least, which is like them. He's shown love to them. This is where you see a picture of true greatness, self-giving love for the lowly. And this is where I think it's so hard for us, not only because we want to be great, but because we want others to see us as great. But it's these unseen acts of service, thankless tasks, love that's never recognized at the front that really reveals our heart to serve others. I absolutely think there's a special place in heaven for nursery workers. 
I'm so thankful for you. That kind of thing that you're willing to do behind the scenes to help others, to be freed up others to come and, and worship the Lord without any kind of distraction. What a, what a blessing. True greatness is revealed often by the company that we keep. Are, are we loving people who, who usually get overlooked by others? Would we be the ones who wouldn't overlook them? I think that includes children. It includes uh, people with varying disabilities that make it hard for them to naturally connect with a community. It includes the poor among us, that they would be among us. People who are overwhelmed with problems and just honestly difficult to love. Who could never give us anything in return. Just, just see Jesus here next to this child, welcoming this child at his side as he has welcomed you and me who are helpless and can do nothing to repay him. Listen to Charles Colson, who he contrasted the ministry of Jesus with the corrupt ambition that he witnessed in the Nixon administration, and even in his own heart before he was a believer. He said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowliest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards, a borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide and stand at attention as they wait to greet and for others to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks patiently waiting to enter our lives. So friends, that's our, that's our model. The greatest became the lowest for us. Don't let pride hinder and cloud your witness for Jesus. And lastly, and related, we see the disciples are, number four, fighting the wrong enemy. Fighting the wrong enemy. It's hard to know if this question here in verse 49 comes from John kind of as a confession or an objection. It could be that Jesus' um, object lesson here with the child brings about this incident to his mind, and he's like, oh, okay, we blew it there. Let's go ahead and talk about that with Jesus. Or it could also be an objection. Okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but surely there's limits on like who we would approve and welcome into the ministry. So we'll judge as we read it, but look at verse uh, 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And so we know that others outside the 12 were hearing Jesus' teaching, believing him and following in his pattern of ministry. But the disciples felt that they needed to put a stop to this because this person was not following with us, he says, or Mark just um, records him saying us. So he was not following us. I do think it's interesting that they're trying to stop someone from doing this work, this, this miracle that they have just been unable to do. Is that a coincidence? Maybe when we take our focus off of Jesus and the gospel and what he's called us to do, trust in him and start mainly evaluating others from a place of pride, does that make our own life and ministry more or less effective? 
Jesus' response is there in verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you, is for you. Later in Luke's gospel, he's going to say something similar, but phrased negatively. So you can just mark down Luke eleven twenty three. 23. There he says, whoever is not with me, this is Jesus, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I think those two verses are helpful kind of guardrails for us as we think about relating to others that follow Jesus outside of our own church, outside of our own community, our own uh, circles. Guardrail number one, if they're not with Jesus, they're against Jesus, period, period. There is no middle ground. There is no third way. In fundamental matters of doctrine, who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? Who is man? There can be no compromise. You will either gather with Jesus or scatter from Jesus. Jesus is not saying here that we should welcome and support heresy. Welcome and support anyone who says anything they want about who he is. He tells the church at, at, at Ephesus, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans, and so should you. And he commends them for testing false prophets and not bearing with evil. It's good that you do that, church, but, but you've, you've forsaken, you've lost your first love. Go back, remember where you, from where you have fallen. Go back and repent and do the works that you did at first. So that's kind of the first guardrail. Is this, is this with Jesus or against Jesus? But the, but the second here, under the umbrella of Christian ministry, there's going to be churches and ministries that, that we're going to see as more or less aligned with, with Scripture, more or less aligned with um, our, what, we, what we see Scripture teaching on, particularly second and third order issues. These are issues that are important enough to have different churches. They're important enough to do that, to have different denominations and, and seminaries. But the folks that we are, are talking about here are still Christians. And those Christians that we disagree with or who would do things differently than we do them are not our enemies. And so, friends, that colors the way, the way that we pray for them and think about them and treat them. We don't need to treat them as our enemies. Satan is our enemy. Jesus makes that really clear here. So as much as we can, we need to seek to encourage other Christians in this battle. J.C. Ryle laments the way that thousands of Christians, he says, in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wear their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel is preached and the devil's kingdom is pulled down, though the work may be done not exactly in the way that we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. That's a good word for me. I was talking to a, uh, a church planter this past week who was going into a new city. And 
couple of the people that he talked to were existing pastors in that city, and he had an incredibly discouraging conversation with them. Why do we need another church? We already have churches here. But friends, we want to see the gospel multiplied. We, we want to pray that the gospel would grow, don't we? Not, not our reputation, but the, the reputation of Jesus. I think we see this mindset in both Testaments. It's, it's, this is very similar to a time when, when in, uh, in Numbers, when elders are appointed to assist Moses in the wilderness wandering. And the Lord allows these men, these, these 70 elders, to prophesy along with Moses. But some others outside those appointed number also prophesied. And a young man comes to Joshua. Joshua comes to Moses and says, my Lord, stop them. And Moses replies in Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And then when, when Paul is in prison in Rome, he learns that some other preachers are seizing an opportunity to preach for their own self-promotion. So their motives for preaching the gospel are bad. Envy and rivalry, and, and, and they want to do harm to the Apostle Paul. And this always blows my mind. Philippians 1.18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And so may the Lord give us a heart like that, that, that no, matter what, no matter what, the gospel of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed. All over this city, all over this state, all over this, this country, all over the world, may that be our deepest desire. And when it is, our witness to him will better reflect him, not us. Now, there will always be ways in which I think we sin in these, these, these areas. We have and we will. Not trusting God to do what, what only God can do. Taking our eyes off the ball, taking our eyes off the cross. Seeking glory for ourselves. Fighting the wrong enemy. But here's a comforting truth from this passage. Jesus has mercy and grace for sinners, even here. How long would he bear with these slow, believing, hard-hearted disciples? Well, apparently as long as it took. The answer here, we see him bearing with them over and over again, teaching them over and over again. And friends, the same is true with us. He has the same amazing patience with, with his people. He will not give up on us. He will sanctify us and one day glorify us. Friend, if you're here again and you're not a Christian, this is our deep desire is to glorify Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and take your part in glorifying the one who made you to know him. Until that day comes, when he comes again, we want to take the words of Isaac Watts' hymn over 300 years ago as a reminder for us. When I survey the wondrous cross, right? We want to stay there, survey the cross, look to the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. May it be so. Let's pray together.